Yesterday, as I was uh, putting together what notes I wanted to bring for the talk today, what I wanted to say today, writing this talk, I thought to myself, they like to have titles for the talks. and um, it, it always happens that at the end of a talk, uh, whoever, has, whoever has taped it will say, what's the title of today's talk? And I have to think back and think, oh, what was it? And, um, if you look in, sometimes I look in back in old Dharma Seed catalogs, and I see a title of a talk, and it's either so generic that I have no idea what I said, uh, like the meaning of mindfulness, or it's uh, so specific, like uh, the Dharma of Horton, <laughs> that I can't think of what else, you know, I sort of a general ballpark, but not quite, you know, so it must have been something about patience. So I thought, well, if I uh, were to uh, make a talk, a title for today's talk for the Dharma Seed Catalog, it would be... Um, when should we cry? When should we tell each other how scared we are? When will we figure out how to heal the world? And uh, when and where will we move the sofa? <laughs> and they all fit. And they all have to do with paying attention. They all have to do with uh, coming in contact with the truth of our experiencing, allowing ourselves to see what's true, responding with the deepest part of our heart nature to what's true, and responding from clarity that comes from balance and from um, creativity that comes from um, the intuitive mind that's able to think of things in a new way. That's where the sofa comes in. So I thought I would bring us three visual aids for today, this uh, um, face makeup that I showed you before we started to sit together, called um, A Perfect World. So that could be the vision of uh, what might happen. Uh, and three teas. Um, you, you may have seen this new tea company. Uh, this is a tea. Would that we could drink tea and have it. This one is called Calm. This one is called awake, so that this makes up the two components of mindfulness. You know, we'll uh, calm the mind down, and then we'll have it focused so it doesn't fall completely asleep. And it's not for the uh, end of being just calm and focused just for its own self, so that we won't be uh, so uncomfortable, but calm and focused so that we'll see what's true, so that we will respond with passion to what needs to be done. So. These are my three visual aids. And, uh, and this is the Azo, it looks like Azo, Tezo, Tezo, Tezo Tea Company. Um, and uh, I, I haven't tasted them yet because I was saving them as a visual aid. But uh, they are way better. I was All these years we've had teas at retreats that are called Constant Comment. And... I have been thinking if we could replace the constant comment with a little calm, awake, and passion, we might have a uh, perfect world. So. <laughs> I think I have to travel with these. Don't you think I need those as visual aids? They don't take up a lot of room. They have one called Om as well. Oh, I could bring the Om and take that out at the end.
So I thought I, w I really wanted to talk about faith today. I, I just read uh, the the uh, not yet published galley proofs of my friend Sharon's new book on faith that will come out in the fall. And it was wonderful, and I was so inspired. And very much was loved the sense of mindfulness practice as faith practice. When we sit down here and say, here I am, I'll just be with what's true. It's an enormous faith statement about we can do what's true. We can face it. We can look at what's happening. We can feel what's happening. It's an extraordinary kind of faith statement to say, I have the heart to open my eyes and see what's happening in the world and somehow acknowledge it, say this is what's true. I don't have to hide from it. It's a huge statement. Because I think sometimes, and perhaps you feel it as well, uh, be wonderful to go to some isolated island and say, uh, call me when it's over. <laughs> you know, just hide. Tell me, send me a letter at the end of the year. Tell me what happened. Um, so it's a very big faith statement to say we don't have to do that. We can stay awake in the world right here and have that nobility of spirit that's able to look at it, say this, these are all the things that are terribly wrong with the world and I need to be able to do my part in fixing it. I can't fix the whole of it single-handed, but there must be something that I could do. And the other thing, line that I liked so much from Sharon's book is... Uh, she was uh, talking about the Pali word for faith and uh, pointing out that it uh, has as another derivation, it's sometimes uh, defined as faith and sometimes as hospitality. And hospitality is a great word, like my heart can be hospitable to this moment, can invite it in, doesn't have to say, I close. That's an enormous, uh, enormously wonderful interpretation of it. You know, even before the world situation, which we now are all hearing from day to day with all such pain. When we were sitting a little while ago, just at the end of the meditation, and I said, uh, uh, let's use these minutes, if you haven't already done that, to think about the people that you need know need special care and blessing in this moment. And then I said... Um, Imagine, and then I said, no, realize, and I imagine that everyone else has had people as well um, come up in their mind, and you could send blessings without knowing the names of those people. Um, even when the world situation doesn't seem as grievously pained on a country-to-country -country level as it does now, uh, in our lives, no one here probably um, doesn't know someone in the middle of dying. Um, and in the middle of um, in the middle of life uh, in, in my family last week there was a bar mitzvah so it's a very joyous occasion whole clan comes together from all over the country but one woman there who's uh, a woman young enough to have two children who are 12 and 2 is very 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 seriously ill with breast cancer there's some possibility that She'll get better, but not a lot. But here's this whole clan, so that clan has that. A friend of mine in San Francisco who uh, was in the middle of planning her wedding has just discovered she has a brain tumor. 
This happens to everybody, though. If not me, then the person next door. If you look in your families, you know somebody like that. We all know somebody like that. I think it's the fact that we know somebody like that and that when I tell you my story and you don't know my cousin in, in um, Cincinnati and you don't know my friend in San Francisco, but everybody feels, ah, when they hear that because they know the feeling of pain about that. We know how it is when other people have pain. You know, that, that, that kind of recognition of uh, pain in the middle of joy was, it was, uh, I had somewhat of the... Uh, the reverse, inverse of that notion when I saw the cover of People magazine a couple of weeks ago did you see there's a, a people, it was a People magazine with uh, a whole cover of mothers and babies did you see it? they were all mothers with babies that were born of fathers who died in the World Trade Center and, and so there were understandably my hair stands on all end when I say that you know so many people died many of them were men whose women were pregnant. So, these are children born without fathers. And you looked at the pictures, and I read them, and the women were remarkable. They had stories of each of these women. And um, they were joyous stories of life and this new baby and frequently named for its father. And um, So... We have these curious lives with joy in the middle of pain and pain in the middle of joy. And somehow we can't have, uh, you know, if we could dial up, I'll just have this and not that. But we, there's something that means that's not possible. So think about what does this, what does this practice at all have to do with being able to open our eyes to the pain of the world and then make a difference, either in our near relationships, because those differences count, be able to look at the person in your family and say, you know, I know, I know this is happening with you. Can we talk a little bit about it? That's hard to do, too. And to be able to look at the world and say, what am I doing to make a difference in this world? Who could I write to? Who could I, which petition could I sign? What editorial could I respond to? What would we have to do to be able to do it? I think we would have to, like the tea bags, we'd have to be calm enough to be able to stand it and awake enough to be able to see it. We'd have to be in contact with the passion that comes from wanting so much to respond. I think that's a passion that, that really is compassion. It comes out of our empathetic connection to people, to people that we don't know, sometimes to people that we do know, but through our experience with people we do know, people that we don't know. So I think we would, uh, if we stopped, which is what being mindful is, both moment to moment in our lives. I actually think, you know, I, I teach this a lot when I go around and I teach in different places, and especially people who are not meditators or are used to a scene like this, I tell them, look, you know, the practice of mindfulness doesn't mean that you will look any different from how you look now. Your life doesn't even have to look different. It's not that you're going to walk slower in the street, necessarily. Um, or, I mean, you can't tell about me that I'm not a regular person. <laughs> and I walk the same fast in the street as other people, and under normal circumstances I talk quite a lot. 
Uh, so it's not about being quiet, it's not about being slow, and it's not about changing career. It's about paying attention. And so it's actually microscopic stops, internal stops in the mind. That, that It's as if we had an internal tape player that says, what's happening, pay attention, what's happening, pay attention. You know the Thich Nhat Hanh mindfulness bell that gets rung during the day in Thich Nhat Hanh communities? Do you all know what that is? Tell me if you don't know. Okay. In Thich Nhat Hanh communities, you know how we ring a bell at the end of a sitting, in the beginning of a sitting. Uh, if you're on retreat and the bell rings and you're on a walk, you know that you're supposed to go back into the meditation hall. In Thich Nhat Hanh communities, they ring the bell throughout the day at unexpected times and everybody's supposed to stop. And they stop whatever they're doing. In mid-conversation, they stop. I mean, they don't have to stop in mid-air. You can put your arms down, but they stop in mid-conversation and they stand there, mid-sentence, quiet, for about a minute, and then at the end of the minute, whoever rang the bell will ring it again, and then they continue on. And in that minute, what everyone is doing is collecting themselves, thinking, where am I? Was I here? Was I really awake? Was I really paying attention? And I think that there are, that there's a way in which I think of mindfulness in general, the commitment to pay attention all the time, commitment to be a witness to what's happening. Oh, that person just said that. My heart just clamped up. I became annoyed. I have this instinct. Wait a minute, what should I do now? Think it over. They're all the time. Or, oh, there's that person in the street who is always out there, hanging around, looking in a bad circumstance, going to come after me, want some help. I don't feel in the mood now. I'll just look the other way. I'll just cross the street. What are you thinking? Okay, you go and you do it. It's, the, it's carrying somebody, it's carrying that voice of your good heart around with you, so it's talking to you all the time. We actually have a voice of a bad heart that's talking to us most of the time, I think. You know, that uh, I, most of us have. I, I, maybe you don't have, but I have. <laughs> a, a tremendous commentator. That's why I made the, the remark about the constant commentee. I have uh, the worst commentator. Of, all of my friends love me unconditionally. But uh, my commentator is saying, Sylvia, you could have done that better. You could have done that wiser. You could have this. You could have that. Uh, I could have another voice. Out of a voice that says, wait, you really don't want to do that in a nice way. Now, fix that. You really don't want to do that. Go over, take care of that person. I could have, because my good heart is there as well. That's what I could actually listen to. If I listened to it in advance, I wouldn't have to cringe afterwards. <laughs> actually, that's what a mindful life would be, wouldn't it? So I think if we stop just momentarily in our lives to pay attention, we would all cry because there's so much pain in the world. We would probably tell each other that we're scared if it were helpful to do it. And I'll tell you a story about that came to my mind about when it's helpful and when maybe it's not helpful all the time. Maybe sometimes we show each other not how scared we are but how courageous we are. I think that's, that's also sometimes helpful. We'd start taking care of each other more because our own good heart would manifest more. We'd be restored in our faith that people are actually good because we'd be as good as we are and everybody else would be too. And we'd see that. Do you remember, I guess, I, I, 
you know, if it's nice or not nice, to say there, there was in the 50s, maybe early 60s, and I think it was Jules Pfeiffer, but I'm not sure, a series of cartoons of people sitting in boxes looking out with kind of cowed looks. And, the, and uh, Lynn remembers, the, and, the, and the caption was, people are no damn good. Remember that? It was Jules Pfeiffer, yeah. wasn't it? Alas. Anyway, he's a, wonderful cart- he's a wonderful cartoonist and a wonderful artist, but people are very damn good. They are. Mm-hmm. And we are too. And that's, I think, what we'd see. We'd also see that we are much more confident than we thought we were, that where we feel effete and uh, like we can't make a difference, we can. Sometimes these days with the world situation, I think to myself, what is one more email into the wind going to do? But one more email into the wind is just, there'll be, a, there'll be enough of a wind of people saying what I want to say, that it'll get heard. I think it'll reassure me that when I'm reassured, I relax. When I relax, I get more hopeful. I like to remind myself, I like to remind, mostly when I teach, I talk about this so frequently. I tell people that Václav Havel said, I probably told you that Václav Havel said, that the definition of hope was being able to say no. And then people are always surprised. I mean, say no. And say no to what's just in front of you. And people are even more surprised because they thought that mindfulness was being able to be open to what's in front of you, to really see it. And he said, no, it's not what's all there is. There is more. That this what I see may fill up what seems to be my whole screen at this point. But actually, if I relax, I can back up a little bit and see around the screen and see that there's more, that the picture is always bigger. It's bigger than this. I just haven't seen it all now. And I think it has to do, really, with what happens in um, meditation. As we begin to pay attention to all of what's happening, even just the part of calming down, when we calm and we pay a little bit of attention, we see that what has captivated our attention, which is often personal and just my story, has seemed to take up the whole of the stage. And when we're a little bit relaxed, it's as if the camera pulls back, and we see a larger attention around it, or we see a larger world around it, see other people out there, other possibilities. We see, among other things, that it's spring in a magical way. It's gotten spring again, and it's green again, at least in this hemisphere. And the bulbs that are supposed to come up, bulbs of tulips came up tulips. They didn't come up hyacinths. That's amazing. Just like babies get born and they look like their parents. That's amazing. There's something, by the way, just of being able to look back from a situation, a particular situation of life, and see life itself, and have a sense of the continuity of life itself in a lawful way. One of the ways, that, one of the reasons I think we get so excited about first buds in the spring or babies getting born is that it just speaks to the part of us that says, you know, there's a story of life going on, of recreating itself out of what looks like it was dead, that keeps going on and on and on, that we are part of, that we're not just watching, that we are actually part of. I had a phone call a week, just a couple of days ago, maybe the day before yesterday, and um, 
I was, I, I, I have two telephones, but one of them, is my children know the phone number, so I always say to the person, wait, it's one of my children, I have to answer this. Now, my children are way adults, but, you know, they're, they're your children forever, so you always answer that phone, hold on. And it was one of my children who had just spent the whole day at the, the birth of the child of a friend of hers. As you see, they're way adults. And uh, she was so ecstatic. She was in a car phone talking to me, and I went back to my phone call, a friend of mine also, and I said, I need to call you back. I went back on the phone call with my daughter, and I realized I was, much the, I was as much on that phone call for myself as I was for her, that she really wanted to tell me about the whole day and who did what, and, uh, but I just really wanted some of that energy of it's a world getting born in the different ways that the world is continually rising itself up and getting born in new ways, and that we pass through it so fleetingly in the whole picture of the cycle of lives. But if we leave it in a better way than we came in, that'll be enough. We don't have to fix it completely. If we leave it in a better way. And I realized that I needed her energy at that point. I needed it for the the faith that there's a wisdom inherent in the process of life itself. And I thought about it later. I just listened to her and talk and talk and... Um, I realized um, it was as much for me as for her, and thought about it later about what is it about that that does it for us. And I thought it's not so much that the earth goes on and on and people go on and on, but my sense that we wouldn't go on and on unless caring was fundamental to us, that uh, we care about new birth, new life, and we care about people and individual people. And that when I remember that as being really what's the context of human hearts, I'm restored in my faith that we'll fix it up. You can look out at the world situation, which I think is so painful and such a mess. I think to myself, somehow, I don't know who's going to figure it out, but someone will have some good ideas. I have to have some good ideas. And the good ideas come from that space around the edge of the tight mind, that the mind is going to have to relax. We're not going to fight our way into a new idea. We're going to relax into a new idea, I think. I think, though, first, if we're going to relax into a new idea, we're going to have to cry. I had an experience a couple of weeks ago where uh, I was gone, these, these three weeks that I was gone, I was teaching in one place and another place and another place and sometimes a five-day retreat and sometimes a two-day retreat and then a five-day and a four-day and here and there. And it's wonderful to teach. I've, I consider it a great honor and a great gift. I love to be able to do it. I'm happy when I do it. It's intense because I'm sitting a lot because I meet a lot of people because I sometimes just a short amount of time if it's a very brief kind of a, an evening talk somewhere to explain to people what this is all about and hope that they get it. It's, it's more dramatic, and sometimes I'm with people for a couple of days and moving around a lot, flying around a lot. And I was feeling good. I'm happy to tell you I was feeling good. At least the, and my body was holding up, and I was very happy about that. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm really doing well. There's an enormous amount of input coming in, and I'm really meeting the occasion. Really, the mind is complete. My mind is completely balanced. That must be because I'm paying such good attention. So I'm keeping myself perked up. You know, I'm telling myself good things to keep my morale up. And I was flying from Newark to Indianapolis, where I was just about to 
uh, teach a whole weekend of, of very intense kinds of different kinds of meetings over the weekend. And uh, I sat down on my plane, on the first plane, to, in a series of planes to get to Newark, uh, and I opened the newspaper and read an article. I started to read an article on the op-ed page. And it was not an article on the Middle East, which I've been very, very concerned about and listening to and working on, and uh, or of any of the other topics that are close to my heart. Uh, or on top of my consciousness at this moment, was an article about um, the Sudan. And the article by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, oh, I guess a week and a half ago, on the Sudan. And I started to read it, and I burst into tears, sitting on the airplane by myself. And I burst into tears. I had to hide behind my newspaper um, and cry. Uh, and I, it was all right. Everybody just rides in the plane. But I thought to myself, and I was wrong in my first thought. I thought, you see, I really wasn't as balanced as I thought I was. I really thought I was really doing it right, that I was doing my whole teaching as a retreat, carefully, thoughtfully, awake, alert, present. And I thought to myself, aha, I wasn't as balanced as I am. I think it's because I was, actually. I think it's because I was as alert as I was. I think if you're as alert as you can be, then there's nothing you can do but cry. If you read a, th- a, 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 um, I read a little bit to you. It's hard to hear. This is from Sudan. This is Nicholas Kristof, Jabal Aulia in the Sudan. Their life stories are so braided with death and despair that Ajok Maniel and Nul Aru make the perfect Sudanese couple a reflection of the world's most wretched country. Ms. Maniel fled the civil war in southern Sudan when an Arab militia allied with the government swept through her village, shot her brother dead, and stole everything her family had. Mr. Aruz fled when troops on the rebel side attacked and killed his brother and turned his family from tribal chieftains to refugees. Thus victimized by rival sides in the civil war, Ms. Maniel and Mr. Aru met and fell in love in this refugee camp of several thousand mud huts. They married in 1996 and had three children. The eldest died of measles. Now the youngest, a frail two-year-old girl named Ankier, is dangerously ill as well. The world's attention may be focused elsewhere in the region, but this is by far the Middle East's bloodiest war, with two million Sudanese dead over the last 18 years. The war arising from the rebellion by the southern part of the country, mostly Christian or amidst the black, or animist and black African, against smothering rule by the Muslim Arab northern part, has left four and a half million homeless. With temperatures in this bleak desert town in northern Sudan, well over 100 degrees from dawn to dusk, with children dying as their parents fret over which of their sick children they can afford to take to the doctor, or a visit to the doctor costs 20 cents. This landscape looks like a vision of hell. Walking in among the mud huts, you meet eight-year-old Boutros looking after his four-year-old brother. Now that his mother has died and his father has vanished in the war, Anthony Minoway explaining that it is best if his five children eat the one meal a day they can afford, sorghum gruel, in the evening so that they can fall asleep afterwards, and Angeline Henry wailing and cackling hysterically as neighbors explain that she went insane after troops killed her son and carried off her daughter. 
Can you not cry? This is happening in our world. It goes on to say, that at this point, there's growing talk there that 2002 may be a year of peace. Former Senator John, John Danforth is the envoy for peace there from the Bush administration. There is real momentum for peace, so-and-so, a Sudan expert in London says. And one reason for that is despite occasional sound bites, uh, for, this is, I have always, Amy, Despite occasional sound bites from the Bush White House about never negotiating with terrorists, that's what it's doing here, and to its immense credit. This is the important part. It's precisely because this administration is willing to talk seriously and even upgrade relationships with a currently terrorist-tainted government in Khartoum that there is some hope of ending the war. Now, this is not what we normally think. This is thinking outside the box. Uh, the Clinton administration's politics on Sudan was too idealistic. This is very hard for me to read. You know, this, I, have, I have different politics. I'm sorry to say that because I'm not supposed to be political here, but uh, I've been thinking about that as well. If not here, where? I mean, um, but it's important for me to read this. Uh, Republicans at the time were so turned off by the awful government here that they began to flirt with the rebels in the South. But the rebels are also monsters, and it's been clear since 1998 that they could not win. So the American gift of credibility to the rebels arguably only prolonged the Sudan's suffering. There may be two lessons from the smaller but better publicized conflict northeast of here. That's the one in Israel now. First, if the leaders are as brutal and untrustworthy as Sudan's, it's worth negotiating with them. Because in the real world, it often falls to the thugs to become the peacemakers. That's an amazing thing to say. But wait, wait, wait. If somehow we will convert the thugs into peacemakers and help them to plant so that people have food to eat. I don't know, but I'm thinking about this. It is not my politics, but there's always hope that peace can suddenly glimmer. And if it can glimmer here, it can maybe glimmer in the Holy Land as well. In any case, while waiting for peace here in Sudan, children continue to die. And in their mud hut, Ms. Manier and Mr. Aru and little Akier is whimpering and crying, and the parents have gone to buy medicine and have gone broke buying medicine for her. But they're afraid that the doctor's diagnosis of malaria may be wrong, for despite the medicine, Akier is growing more feeble each day. It's impossible to read that without thinking every day when you get up, half the world is going to bed hungry today, and what have I done about it? You know, Gandhi said before he did any single thing, he thought to himself, how is this action that I'm about to do going to affect the poorest person on earth? You know. I used to think to myself, it was a joke once, would I, interviewing a spiritual teacher, what would I ask? Well, it, was a, it wasn't a joke. We talked about it at a, at a, at a decades ago, maybe 15 years ago at a Vipassana teacher meeting. There was a, a lot of talk in the, in the Buddhist world about the, at that time about how could you trust a spiritual teacher. There were some disclosures of malfeasance in spiritual communities, Buddhist and otherwise. And the question is, how could you tell if your teacher was a valuable teacher? Some teachers that seemed to have a lot of insight didn't behave in ways that were helpful in their community and the world. 
So the question is, how, what would you ask a spiritual teacher? And so we, we, we talked about it seriously. And somebody said, well, if somebody said this is a hard question, someone said, no, you know, you could certainly rule out questions to ask, like you wouldn't ask, uh, do you recycle? But I think you would, you know? I, at the time, we all laughed. We thought that was very funny. Uh, maybe it was even I who said, but I would ask. I hope it wasn't I who said that. But I might have been. But I would ask now, because it matters that we recycle. And every once in a while, you probably, you probably all recycle. And you probably stand as I do, with a bottle, where there's no recycling bin. And you think to yourself, hey, it's one bottle. You know? Don't you do that? But it's one bottle that could be recycled or not. And I give myself credit that I have the peace of the mind that says, wait a minute, you did just think that, but you don't have to just do that. It doesn't mean that we have to get bizarre with ourselves. We're not going to stop buying things in bottles. But I think that that kind of thoughtfulness is what we're all going to have to, not we all, not we, I am committed to that kind of thoughtfulness, not because I think I personally and single-handed will change the world, but I personally am assuaged in my pain about the world if I'm not contributing to making it worse. That's how it works for me. I'm committed to looking at the pain in the world because anything else would be hiding. I want to be awake in this life. I, I read something on someone's computer here. Just before I left on this trip, uh, I... Uh, needed to uh, check my email and I went to somebody's desk here and you know how people, my, uh, my computer frame is all full of little things that I've clipped out and pasted on it so I'll see it every day. Uh, so everybody else's is too. So when you see the, you sit down on someone else's computer, you see a lot of their personal life. You would if you sat down at mine. So uh, this person had a quote from Emil Zola. Uh, he said, uh, it was a, in response to a question of someone who had asked him about the purpose of life, the purpose of what he thought was the purpose of his life. And he said, uh, I came to live my life out loud. Mm. And I really have been thinking about that, mulling it over my mind ever since. Because uh, I understood it differently when I read it a month ago than I understand it now. When I read it a month ago, I came to read, live my life out loud. It was speaking to me mainly about the quality of transparency that um, I, th I thought I don't have anything to tell people but the truth. Um, what's my experience, what I know. And so I just have to really, I have to keep, and I do, I think I did it already twice today, change from saying we to I, because I, I can only speak from what is my experience. I imagine it's often yours, because I'm just a person, but, and, and people have the same, I am a person, not just a person. So I think that we all feel the same kinds of ways, but I took it as I came to live my life out loud that I should have nothing to be ashamed about, that I should be able to recognize even the things that are embarrassing to me because I don't do things perfectly and I make plenty of mistakes. And uh, I think about conf public confession and contrition and uh, internal contrition, public confession and rededication as a major place of my spiritual life. And you're a big part of it, you know that. Um, so I, I understood it mostly as not hiding. I came to live my life out loud. But I've been thinking about it more in these last couple of weeks in terms of the uh, growing sense I have of um, needing to tell what I think if I have an opinion, even a political opinion. You know, we're really committed here at Spirit Rock not to be a 
politically partisan uh, place. We can't be. We're a church. But, uh, but I can have, have a, an opinion. So they don't actually have an opinion about uh, uh, political parties. They have opinions about programs. I can, for instance, um, talk about uh, the fact that um, the current administration is blocking a $34 million grant meant for the United Nations Population Fund. Because of pressure on him, because the Population Fund uh, is prepared to provide information about contraception, abortion. So he tells a story, uh, can you bear this? But a woman um, in a hospital in Sudan awaiting surgery for an obstetric fistula. She married at 13 and because of no contraception available gave birth at 14 after no prenatal care, did not have the help of a midwife. After three days of labor, the baby was born dead and Mrs. Idris had suffered a fistula, the tearing of her rectum, urethra, and vagina, leaving her incontinent and causing bodily waste to seep through her vaginal canal and down her legs. As with hundreds of thousands of other women in the developing world who have fistula, hundreds of thousands, Mrs. Idris's clothes were constantly wet and soiled. Her husband promptly divorced her. People were saying things behind my back. Some insulted me to my face, Mrs. Idris said, speaking in a catatonic whisper. She's now 19 years old. She's lived with this nightmare for five years, spent her entire family's savings, $80, on two failed operations. This is an 100% preventable problem, Dr. Abdullah Kanan, the gynecologist in, fistula said of, in, in Khartoum, said of fistula. It has disappeared completely from Western countries. New York's Hospital for Fistula Patients closed in 1895 because of diminishing cases. The condition is almost unknown in America, yet Khartoum has 10 to 20 new patients arriving from the countryside each week because of poor midwifery. $34 million meant to go to the UN for the World Population Fund. Didn't go. To whom should we write? What should we write? When should we say? When should we cry? When should I say I'm scared? When should I not? I should say I'm, I am scared, I think. I, I, I think I like to be able to tell people I'm scared when there's something that we can do. Um, so if I send, uh, I think a lot about sending on emails to other people, but I got one yesterday that said, if you sign this petition and send it to 100 people, if I send it on, I'm trying to figure out how to negotiate so my email will send it all to everybody at one time. But I will, and I'll do it because I'm scared that a particular voice that needs to get heard isn't getting heard. And we could get heard. I think when, I, th- I want to tell you a story about what I think it's okay not to be scared. Or to be scared and not tell other people. That holds them up a little bit. Also because it's a funny story. Also because I remembered it yesterday, I thought I wanted to tell a funny story so that it uh, wasn't too distressing of a morning here together. We have the ability to cry. We also have the ability to laugh. Five years ago, more than that a little bit, I, I, I remembered it. With, I was talking to somebody about um, going to India 
95 or 96 with the Buddhist teacher uh, group, 26 of us going to um, Dharamsala to meet with the Dalai Lama. And we converged from different parts of the world, some of us. Some people you know, um, Jack was there, I was there, um, Steve Smith was there, who else would you know? Uh, Lama Surya Das was there. Anyway, different parts of the world. Um, and uh, most of us gathered in uh, Delhi uh, on the day that we were all supposed to take the night train together and go up to uh, uh, Pat- uh, Pat- uh, Patankot and then go by car over to uh, over to Dharamsal. Four hours, that car trip is an incomparable car trip. Indian taxi drivers are like nothing in the world. Indian roads are like nothing in the world. And when you go up in the, in the, in the Kashmir, it's, uh, it's, in the, it's in the mountains, it's up in the Himalayas. So you're really close to the edge of the road as you come around these little tiny turns. And it's just, there's nothing except saying your prayers around each turn because it, you have such a sense of we're on the edge all the time. Um, Jack at one point leaned over my shoulder, I was sitting up in front with the driver. He said, are you saying your prayers? And I said, I am. He said, are you saying Buddhist prayers or Jewish prayers? <laughs> I said, I'm saying both. He said, good. <laughs> it was very hair-raising. <laughs> but the night train, the night before, we, we met on the station. We, we, uh, we went from the hotel. How many of you have been to India? There's really nothing that I could tell you that would give you the experience of India. You have to have been there. Uh, of overwhelm of the sensory stimuli. There are so many people and so much life happening in the street. And if you fight with it, it's terrifying. And if you surrender, it's extraordinary. It's like everything of life. It's, the, it's like a story of creation happening in front of you. There is borning and dying and eating and sleeping and every possible kind of body behavior in the street and um, cooking and living. And we left our hotel, and uh, we had a couple of taxis and went to the uh, train station. And we got there, and the train was late. We were all congregating on the train station. And the train was late, which is not so uh, unusual. And we sitting, so we were obligated to sit on the train station, on the track, on the train station, for a long time, a couple of hours, actually. And uh, so we're hanging out, sitting there, and uh, people get arrive on the on the station and more people, more people, more people, and it starts to get really crowded on the, on the, on the platform there, waiting for the train. I remember I was sitting uh, on something on Steve Smith's duffel bag, back with me, and um, getting more and more crowded. It, the train is very interesting in, uh, in India because it cuts across all the social strata. There are people looking very elegant, uh, women in beautiful, elegant saris, obviously women of some financial security and there are people in the most abject state of difficulty and people wrapped in blankets on the train station sleeping and you don't know whether they're waiting for the train or they live there on the train station or in fact that they died. I entertained the thought, you know, I don't know if this person is even how long that so you sit there, everything is happening around you, it's getting tighter and tighter. At one point I thought to myself, I I thought I'd go to the bathroom. But the idea of leaving my group there on that station and going to find uh, toilets in India are chancy operations anyway. 
and to find my way back to this group it was out of the question. I was waiting for the train to come in. And there were some uh, uh, two young American women traveling with a very young child. The child was a toddler, though, and running around on the station. Because I remember Jack leaning over to me and saying, you know, I'm not a worrying type. But even I am worrying about that child <laughs> being here on the station and recognizing that I am a worrying type, especially if it's children running around on platforms. Anyway, we get on the train, and uh, we start to ride up during the night, and uh, many, many people packed into this car. You know how we have sleeping cars? In European sleeping cars, there are four people who sleep usually in a room where you open the door, you go in the room, there's two people down, two people up. Sometimes three, but uh, anyway, but a room and, uh, and a, uh, a walkway over here. In the Indian sleeping cars, there are two people down, two people up in each compartment, but no wall. And the corridor is not a corridor. It's a corridor that you can kind of edge down, but there are people sleeping in the corridor. So they are sleeping perpendicular to you. So you're sleeping here and here and here and here, and there's people sleeping. So all around you are people. No doors to close. You just kind of lie down, cover yourself with a little blanket that they've given you, and you lie there. And uh, all around you in the dark, it's incredibly dark as the train is going through India at night, because most of India is not electrified. And uh, in the middle of the night, all of a sudden the train came to a big halt. And there's a lot of banging and clashing and smashing, loud noise, crash, bang, lurch. I had been reading um, some of the books about the really uh, terrible uh, attacks that happened on Indian trains around the time of partition, around the time of uh, the partition of India and Pakistan. I forgot, Midnight, and, uh, I forgot the name of the book. Um, Children of Midnight, maybe, uh, Salman Rushdie. And at the time that I was there, there was tremendous strife in India, as there is again now, uh, again about different kinds of uh, religious fights. So I had all this imagery in my mind, lying there in the night, it's completely dark. You get up, you look out the window, it's completely dark out, it's completely dark in. It's a little light down the corridor so you could find your way to the toilet. Look out the window, it's dark, all this clanging and smashing. And I realized that I got frightened. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I imagined the worst, people smashing through the doors. And I, but I was lying there, and everybody seemed quiet. And, you know, up, uh, above me, I'm surrounded by Dharma teachers. Everybody seems okay. So I thought to myself, well, I'm going to die here. I'm going to die amongst friends, um, apparently friends of noble spirit. So it's, it, this isn't our right place. There's nothing I can do about it. Then I felt a little embarrassed that I was so frightened because I was sure everybody had such nobility of spirit that they weren't frightened. <laughs> I got up in the morning, and everybody got up in the morning, greet each other nicely, cordially. We don't all know each other so well. They bring around the tea with sitting and talking. And by and by, I come to find out that everybody heard the banging and smashing and that most people were frightened. And most people thought worrisome thoughts. I wasn't the only one. But it wasn't such a good time to frighten people. So I, I really wanted to tell you that story about doesn't always help to say I'm scared. Sometimes it helps, if you can, to behave nobly. There was nothing we could do at that point. There's something that we can do. We can do it. There's nothing we can do, even in such a dire circumstance. That didn't turn out to be dire. But when my circumstance becomes dire, if there's nothing I can do about it, 
I want to do it nobly. I don't want to frighten the people around me. I don't want to frighten myself. And I think I need to be able to... I think it's not just guts and courage. I think it's actually wisdom that allows us to do that. Because some people have more natural courage than others, you know. I think it's wisdom. And I think it's the wisdom to know this is happening. You know, that when something is happening that you cannot change, there's something that the, about the heart that relaxes. It's okay. This is it. People be, do some tremendous nobility around the awareness of their impending death. I have more to say than I have time for. I want to say that I think that paying attention keeps us here now open to the possibility of what could happen if something could happen and what we could do. And I think that it keeps fear away. Fear is always a future-based thing. If we're here, then we just do what needs to be done. We do what's out there. We don't have time to be frightened. I think when we get allow ourselves or are overwhelmed and become frightened, not only allow ourselves, but when we are frightened, which also happens, that the mind closes in and then we don't see the possibilities. Like when I read you that uh, little piece of the newspaper before, and uh, I said uh, we were <coughs> maybe it was a good thing that the government was going to negotiate with thugs. They could see everybody startled. So it's an extraordinary possibility. Well, maybe it's because of the bad word thugs, but maybe we have to negotiate with whoever has the power there and convert them in some way. To see out of the old ways that we thought would work because they don't work. In the Middle East, I've had I have a debate that goes through my email all the time about this view and that view and this view and that view. But it hasn't worked so far. We need a new view. I keep thinking everybody should go home for a month and just eat with their families for a month and visit. And um, after a month, maybe they'll get a new idea and start again and declare amongst them, we haven't had a good idea. Nobody won. We all lost. Now let's start from the beginning. But even to be able to say nobody won, we have to give up the the notion that the ego always has, that I'm a little writer. Not I'll capitulate, I'll give in, because, hey, it's a good thing to do. But I could have been wrong. I could have been wrong is a huge step. I could have been wrong. I could have been wrong about my political views. I, you know, I've often been wrong. I want to tell you why I was going to say about moving the sofa, because otherwise it won't fit into this whole talk. And it fits. It started with moving the sofa. Because the first incarnation of this talk yesterday morning, I talked to a friend on the phone, and they said, uh, what are you going to talk about tomorrow? And I said, um, I'm going to talk about haiku's, mon- uh, haiku's mindfulness in moving the sofa. So it moved away from that, but... And included the, but because I really, I really had to say also this is part of what's in my consciousness as well. But it's but the moving the sofa has to do with this question often asked during retreats, during meditations. People will say, you know, as I was sitting and I was attending so closely to the present moment, and I felt I was so present. Suddenly, I wrote a poem. A haiku uh, appeared to me in my mind. And then I fixed it a little bit. It was the most beautiful haiku I'd ever written. 
and I wanted so badly to write it down. But everybody said, here, don't write. Don't keep the journals. I'm not writing, keeping the journal. But I'm repeating the haiku to myself all day long. <laughs> what should I do? That's question one. It's the same question as people will say sometimes, you know, I was sitting here just attending to this moment, and I was so present. And all of a sudden, I had this tremendous revelation about a whole psychic pattern in my life that I had not understood before. And I suddenly got it that this is my shadow, and this is my shadow because it was my father's personality. And it's in me, but I didn't want it, so I put it in my shadow. But there it is. And they say, should I go back to the breath? Should I go back to the present moment? Should I write the haiku in my journal? What should I do? And sometimes people will say, you know, all of a sudden I realized, when I'm going home, I want to repaint my whole living room and move the sofa because the way it is, it just is in the middle of the traffic pattern. Those three things fit into the same category of mind. And they fit into the same category of mind in which new ideas about world peace and world hunger arise. They're the category of the intuitive mind. They're the category of the mind not in a linear, moving forward, exploring the same paths that it's always done. It's the mind meandering around in new paths and deciding um, what it hasn't seen yet. Finding what it hasn't seen yet. No, wrong word. Having what it hasn't seen yet become revealed. Be revealed to it. This is revelation practice. By the way, you might want to know that in the, uh, in the Jewish calendar year, we are um, today completing five weeks of the seven weeks of the counting between Passover and um, uh, Shavuot, which is a festival of weeks, 49 days after the first day of Passover, which uh, is uh, supposed to recall the uh, revelation of the Torah, of the truth at Mount Sinai. So I think to myself, I'm always halfway between the perception that I am free and the possibility of freedom and actually living at the place of revelation. Working there, but not, you know, one false move and the mind is caught back in its patterns of habitual slavery. I think we're probably, I don't know, you can think for yourself, I live in between that journey, between the possi- knowing the possibility of freedom and actually living in a place of revelation. But I hope more or less keeping turning around in the right direction, not arriving there, turning around in the right direction. Maybe that's what mindfulness practice is, turning around in the right direction. So we'll see where we're going. All of those three things, uh, the, the shadow in my mind that is part of my psyche that I haven't looked at, uh, the better way to put the sofa, how to write a haiku, having a haiku write itself, uh, figuring out that um, somebody has a plan. I've forgotten what it is, but one cent out of every $10 of something. Didn't I read that to you a few weeks ago? Could feed the whole world. It was a plan for world peace based on the teeniest, teeniest of contributions, not tithing, just a penny out of some funds of of each of us. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could all feed the world collectively? wanted to show you that this is the last picture. A woman begging in the streets in Buenos Aires. I don't know whether it's a good vision to end with, but uh, the, the, the uh, uh, headline is, Will You Still Feed Me? Um, 
You remember that Beatles song, Will You, st will you Still Need Me, Will You Still Feed Me, when I'm 64. So I first heard that song when I was 21. Uh, and um, who knew that it got here so fast? Uh, <laughs> and how many of the Beatles are dead? Two. Two. One of them last year. The United Nations estimates that the world's elderly population, elderly population, they're counting as 60 and over, so how many of us are elderly? <laughs> uh, will exceed the world's population of youth, 14 and under, for the first time by 2050. Much of the boom is in the developed world, but even struggling societies are experiencing growth. The increases will almost certainly force the rethinking of social safety nets for the aged. Would it make a difference if we got up in the morning and thought to ourselves, half of the world is going to go to sleep today hungry? What would we do different in the day? Would we do anything different in the day? Um, how to be able to say that to ourselves in a way Maybe that's really what we were talking about this morning. I was talking about this morning. That's what, what I wanted to talk about this morning. How will I be able to say that to myself and, re and, and stay connected to my sense that people are very good and that if the whole world got up and looked at that picture, the whole world would take care of itself. If we could all stop long enough. Okay, then we're going to do one more minute because I need to read you this poem every once in a while. I carry it with me, on my person, wherever I am in the world, just so I get to read it once or twice a year. Today will be the day here. You know which it is. This is Pablo Neruda, Neruda, Chilean poet, called Keeping Quiet. Now we will all count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second, and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity, Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. <sighs> May the merit of our practice together and our being together, our shared intention, to develop that clarity of mind and that openness and compassion of the heart that is our birthright, manifest itself as fully as it can for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May the merit of our intention 
and dedication of our practice be given completely freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings live in safety, protected, with enough to eat, with medicines to care for themselves and their families. May no one be frightened by anybody else. May this be a world of peace. Should we call? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.